Welcome to Calliope's Sanctum, a story podcast hosted by me, writer Sylvia V. Linstead. This podcast is dedicated to Calliope, primordial and first muse of epic poetry and ecstatic song in ancient Greece. This podcast is a place of sanctuary for her oldest stories. It is a return to the wild garden, to the spring, to the ground of being and the source of inspiration in the earth. Here, we honor Calliope as muse of earth. Here, you will find some of the stories beneath the stories of old Europe, short fictional and poetic pieces written and read by me that explore elements of indigenous old European mythology, a term coined by the late archaeologist Maria Gambutas, with a focus on pre-Hellenic, pre-patriarchal Greece. Come sit with us in the honeyed light, among the ripe pomegranates, in Calliope's sanctuary, where the stories that arise directly from the ground of being and life force can still be safely told and celebrated. Come lean against the sun-warmed stones, with the fragrance of propolis and myrrh in the air, and the trees heavy with autumn quince. This is the garden before the fall, a sanctuary for all hearts in this time. Join us and be revived. Podcast sound editing is by Simon Linstead. Podcast art is by Catherine Seek. And podcast music is by Yanis Linardakis. So welcome to the latest episode of Calliope's Sanctum. This is the fourth and final section of my novella, The Dark Country, which I have been reading all throughout this past spring into the early summer. Um, If you listened to the beginning a long time ago and have been waiting so patiently for the whole tale to be told, thank you for your patience. And I might recommend that you start at the beginning again if you don't remember what happened and listen to it all the way through uh, in one fluid listening or over several sittings to really get the whole story that way. So I really hope that you enjoy this final part and receive this story as a prayer for the arising of an ancient justice and deep connection between our hearts and the earth. Eighteen. A heavy storm kept them in the cave the next day. Water streamed down the cliffs and made the mouth a veil. It was a snug place in the rain. Vries set out a wooden pail that he and his brothers and Lilith had left in the cave's recesses, and it filled in minutes. Essel used the water to cook porridge for them over the fire with the acorns she had leached the day before. With a fire lit and rain moving outside, the cave walls softened to liquid and glowed. Later, very warm, Essel combed and braided Tiln's hair with her fingers, and Tiln turned pink in the fire's light, watching Vries. He had not smiled at all since they had come to the cave. He stared into the embers as he had been doing all evening, holding his shoulder where it ached. Tears stood in his eyes. Do you think there are ghosts here? Tiln whispered very quietly to Essel when it was her turn to braid her sister's hair. Her eyes were still on Vries. 
She whispered it close to Essel's ear, a tickle like warm moth wings, the smell of her girlish breath the same as it had always been, the smell of tiln, milky and clean but a little sour, like she had been chewing on earth. That smell made Essel smile. No, my tone, only shadows, only the memory of his brothers, she whispered back. It is safe here. She said it surely, though she wasn't sure of anything now, and squeezed her sister's hand. And yet she felt safer here than she had felt anywhere since before everything had been taken away, since the stone house of her childhood with its pomegranate tree and the oak grove all around, since the sound of her father and brother whistling sheep calls down from the ridge tops, since the sight of her mother cooking acorn bread in the olive wood coals and singing a Kermie song with the twins drinking from her breasts. But she didn't let herself think of home and of before for more than a moment, only the things that would keep them alive, only the acorns, the water, the fire, where they might gather more wood and dry it, how they might store more water than a single bucket, whether Vries or Tiln or the bear might catch another rabbit for their winter blanket or a marten, whether they could really make it to the city of Crania and what they would do then and if they would die there. Tiln nodded like she always did when Essel said something certain, but still she watched the crouching shadows and wondered. When Vries looked up at her at last, she blushed, and then felt very silly and young and stupid and said loudly, Look, the rain is letting up, so that she could run to the cave's mouth and stick her face out into the stones dripping, into the night still purple with lightning. The bear made a noise where she slumbered in the cave's darkest recess, the kind of little bark she used when she was tired of nursing the twins. Her smell of musk and fur and milk filled the place. Castor and coal, milk smudged, clambered away from her great belly and toward the fire. Castor stopped to put a piece of charcoal in his mouth, and Essel darted up to take it from him, to try to urge a little acorn porridge down so that he might have a taste for something other than bear's milk. He nipped her finger, hard, and she almost dropped him. Tears came to her eyes, and she wasn't sure if they were from pain or fear. She set him down and kissed his dark and growing hair. She smoothed her fingers over Cole's plump cheeks. At least you're both keeping fat, she said to them, trying not to cry. She sat down near them and Vries. When she looked up at the boy, she saw that he was watching the twins and that tears had fallen down across his face. It was our fault, you know, he said, taking her by surprise. Mine, really, not Lilith's. Mine. I wanted to impress her, and she... He choked. Tiln crept back to the fireside, closer now, her face dripping with the last of the rain. She was too good a friend to let me go alone. I wasn't ready. I wasn't as good or as fast as my brothers or her. But my brothers, they were wise. They had to let me try to make myself a man. They knew they couldn't stop me. But it was too dangerous. It was stupid. What did it matter, making a few of the men of Tar believe in ghosts for a night? Why didn't we just do our best to live for each other? And not, not revenge. Vries spoke for a long time about what had happened in the hills above the town called Samos, about his black dog and Lilith, 
about his brothers and the goats and their names. Late into the night, they sat by the fire. Words came that Essel had never meant to speak. Tears which she had never meant to cry, not in front of Tiln. But Tiln, leaning on her sister, was relieved to be able to say at last that she missed her mother, that she wanted Papa to be there, that Omer had been carving his own shepherd's crook that day. For once, Castor and Cole were happy to sit quietly in Essel's lap. They chewed on her wool cloak. They patted at her chest with their little hands, looking for breasts with milk. They fell asleep curled against each other in her skirt. It felt terrible at first to say their names, the names of the ones they had loved. It felt terrible to cry so loudly without being able to stop in front of others. But after a while, as the fire fell away to the faintest coals and they rolled up near it and each other to sleep, what Essel felt was a strange and miraculous lightness, as if she were the rocky face of the gorge, stripped clean by rain. She fell asleep, believing that Zola's face in the lake with no bottom was only a figment of her sadness, that such a thing would not happen again now she had said it, now she had said her mother's name. But the dreams that came to Essel in the cave's dark were full of her. They were not dreams of the past, of the hearth and the acorn bread, her dark wet hair, the twins in her arms, or even dreams of what might have happened, the kinds of dreams that move too slowly and with silent violence. What Essel dreamed was far stranger and more frightening, and she woke from it in a sweat to pace the cave's deep corners where the bear slept. In her dream, her mother was in the belly of a long white snake. There were two other women with her, the girl and the old one Essel had seen in the lake. They seemed to float inside that snake, curled around themselves, fetal and naked. The snake moved through a narrow, watery darkness, along tunnels that bent and turned and branched in a hundred directions, tunnels as white as the snake's skin, the white of ancient limestone. It was unclear whether they were dead or alive, for they drifted in an amniotic silence inside the snake, inside the stone, inside Essel's dream, and Essel for a moment drifted with them. But then she couldn't breathe and thrashed her way awake, gasping. That was no dream, a voice said far away inside her as she paced. But she silenced it and tried to think, to reason, running her hands on the cave's cold, rippled walls, trying to make some solace, some power from the other women who had found shelter here before her, leaving behind their broad-hipped figurines, their vessels for sacred wine. The bear was awake now, watching her. Essel could see the bronze gleam of her eyes. That was no dream, the voice in the darkness of herself said again. But Essel was caught in the bear's gleaming look. A vast intelligence watched her from those eyes. She felt she was staring into the night, into the face of a star. The words she had known when she stood by the lake were gone. What was it she had swallowed? What was it she had called the bear? But they were gone, and only the cave remembered. In silence, in its depths, the words snaked down and far away, following seams and veins of mica, of hematite, of quartz, seeping like water across the island, connecting stone with stone beyond where roots or mines can go. 
Suddenly, the bear snarled. Essel jumped away, but the snarl seemed only a warning, the kind of snarl she directed at the twins when they were pulling her fur too hard. And yet Essel did not know what kind of warning. Bears cannot speak, she told herself. Neither do lakes. She crawled back under her cloak and tried to sleep again. But the dream only returned more vividly. When she woke again at dawn, she felt as though her head was full of stones. She felt as though she hadn't slept at all, and yet she knew she would find no more rest. So she rose, rubbing her eyes, and went for wood to build up the fire and to splash a little water on her face from the rain bucket. Tiln and Vries were still asleep, curled close together near the embers. Watching them in the pale light of dawn, she told herself it would be silly to share her dreams aloud. What would be the use? They should talk of practical matters instead, of crania, of winter. After a little while, the fire was crackling again and a thin pot of acorn porridge bubbled. Essel sat with her hands close to the heat, stirring now and then. Where's the bear? Tiln sat up from her tangle of wool cape and rabbit fur, her dark hair knotted, her nose smudged with ash. The bear was not in her corner, and nor were the twins. Essel ran to the cave mouth, calling out their names. Vries, awake now too, went out to the little grassy plateau, peering closely at the earth and then at the stones on the narrow goat path. She's gone, he said, pointing down. Sea dew had darkened the stones overnight so that the places where they were loosened or moved away showed lighter. There, you can see where her paws pushed the rocks. Where has she taken them? Essel cried wildly. Has she eaten them? The acorn porridge began to burn. She crawled the length and breadth of the cave, searching for any sign of the twins, some tiny handprint in ash, some soggy pebble, but found none. She is a murderess, only a hungry old bear after all, and she tricked us. Quiet, hissed Tiln in a tone she didn't normally use with her older sister. Her small brow was furrowed. Don't speak like that of a bear. Maybe she is trying to tell us something. Her eyes looked very keen to Essel, as if she knew something her sister was hiding. But maybe that was only the older girl's guilt rising. Essel clenched her teeth in her fists, thinking of her dreams, of the voice in the night, the strange intelligence that rested in the eyes of the bear, the snarl. That was no dream, the voice had said, challenging her, and all she thought she knew. Listen, Essel began, but Tiln was already gone, scrambling barefoot down the goat path, calling for her sister to follow. 19. Through Kephthira, something began to move. In the north, on a rocky homestead, a man slaughtered a goat, and the blood that ran across the ground sank into the earth before his eyes as he prayed to the goat's soul to be forgiven, like his father had taught him, holding the body until it was still. The blood went right into the earth like water and was gone. On a stone-laid footpath past a round well between villages above the eastern cove called Ephemia, a woman gathered bay leaves into a basket. She cut them carefully with a little bronze knife, muttering the words her aunts had taught her. Everywhere she cut welled a drop of blood. When she noticed its brightness staining her blade, she didn't run, 
but sat down in a crouch and laid the knife on the ground, remembering an old story about the laurel tree. In the long, narrow bay between Crania and the far western arm of Kephthira, a young man out fishing in a small boat dove overboard at the slow height of noon to cool off in the milky green of the sea. He floated on his back, held by salt. He thought of a young man who he had kissed in the sand only yesterday. A first kiss, a dizzy thing. Clouds left by the lightning storm drifted with great pearlescent flanks overhead. There was a sudden rush all around him, and a sea turtle with long, tapered eyes and a shell as green as summer huffed out of wide nostrils, watching him. The young man kept very still. The turtle had the eyes of his mother, who had passed away in winter. He wept, and his tears fell into the sea. When he climbed back into his boat much later, the hold was full of thousands of perfect silver sardines. In the foothills of the smaller mountain called Kalo, an old woman set fire to her summer garden, now only the last brown stalks of pepper and corn. She had done so every year since she was small. She lit it at dawn, with the dew wet and five buckets of water lined up from the well in case. The smoke glowed in shafts of early sun. The smell reminded her of every autumn of her life, and that continuity brought her peace. She watched the flames and the black that followed. She offered honey and wine in the fire's wake, admiring the fine, cool morning, the sight of the mountain, and its rocks rising up behind her house as they always had. That evening, when the fire was all the way out and the ground cooling, she came to admire the ash and found it full of baby snakes. They flickered and writhed with happiness in the warmth of the ash. She watched them on her knees until night had fallen and the earth was cold. Then the snakes left, making a pathway of their bodies up the mountain and into the crevices between the stones. On the west-facing, pine-clad flanks of Mount Enos, where the men of Tar were lumbering wood for their ships and their cities back home, hacking with sharp axes and without prayers or offerings of any kind, the workers began to suffer debilitating nightmares. Dreams that were constant with screams. When one very old tree was felled, a narrow, bottomless pit opened where its roots had been. A man fell in. The others could hear his screams for hours. They tried to cover the hole with stones, with wood, anything to stop the sound, but everything laid near its edges was pulled in, as if by a great gravitational force. 20. The bear's trail led all the way back across the foothills and scrub slopes to the lake with no bottom. At no point was it difficult to follow. Her paw prints lay heavy across the land. It's as if she made them clear on purpose, said Tilne, her face very long and still, as they caught their breath under an old twisted almond tree and cracked a few of its nuts. A gleam was in her eyes, though, a fierce look. She is the Lady of the Wood, her eyes challenged Essel. I know it. Mine are not always a little girl's fancies. An unseasonably warm wind clattered the almond branches. There were still a few autumn crocuses across the earth, white ones with golden marks on their petals. They rippled. She's only running heavily, said Essel. She tossed a nutshell and rose to her feet. She has a heavy load, 
and she is rushing. Even she could hear the falseness in her voice. Reese eyed her and Tiln, but said nothing. They were going the opposite direction of Carnea, and Reese's spirits dropped with the distance. The imagined nearness to Lilith had lifted them more than he had known. He focused on the bear's tracks, her rough marks across loose stones and mud. Their clarity made him uneasy. They came to the lakeshore in the early afternoon under a fine, warm autumn sun. Green was springing up wherever it could between stones and cypress trees, flushed with rain. There was a buoyancy to the earth that surprised Essel. Then she saw the bear's broad back in the lake. She was swimming. The twins were slung in their reed saddlebags. Castor wriggled and Cole shrieked at the cold that was starting to ride up his tiny legs. Vries was ahead of her, already wading into the water. Essel and Tiln ran after him. As the cold pressed Essel's knees and then thighs and then engulfed her breathlessly, all the fullness of her dreams returned. The bear was paddling in circles. There was a look almost of irritation in her golden eye, of weariness. She swam carefully, keeping the boys aloft, though Cole was wailing still. She swam as if she was looking for something, hunting, waiting. It can't be so, Essel thought, thrashing through the water toward the bear. The white snake, her mother, the old woman, the girl. And yet when she tried to peer down into the water to reassure herself, she saw a terrible, smooth, white gleam far below. She choked on water, then pressed her head under and opened her eyes. The word seemed to course out of her from where it had been lodged, biting into her throat. Fithi, Fithi, Fithi. The water surged. Mother, cried Essel. Vries grabbed Tiln to him as the water heaved. It was a sheet of indigo of darkness. It broke open its fathomless cold upon them. The bear was nowhere. Mother? Where? Tiln screamed. But Essel couldn't hear her. She was at the leading edge of that unfathomed surge, indigo first, then suddenly white, as limestone, as bone, as stars. It rose from the lake, not water, but the oldest word, the beginning, the dark snake, she whose mouth was the earth's first cave and last. She had not expected to be called again. The light and the day and the autumn sun were not her world. She was made of silence and the dark spaces that live in stones, of the unmaking and the made. And there was one of the three in her belly who pained her, who had not forgotten her own name, who had not lost her selfhood entirely in that Pythian stillness, who clutched Lilith and mooned to her breast like stones, whose womb had taken in the snake's own children in that unwinding darkness and was swelling with them now. The white snakes rising pushed the water shoreward in a heave. Essel, Tiln, and Vries were thrashed under with it. The snake's head was a flat, shining triangle in the light, vast and beautiful, with tiny, exquisite eyes. She plunged down again toward the place of her dreaming, jealous of the three in her belly, hoarding their deaths, pained by the knifing consciousness of the smallest one. But the bear waited there in the center of the vortex, where the snake's body rose and readied to fall. She was no longer bear-sized but vast, the twins two stars of light at her hips. 
Her paw struck the snake's white body, lightning to a great tree, rending. A shower of brightness fell everywhere. Scales, ash. Into that scattering, that shower, that brightness, that ash went both bear and snake, unmade. The lake settled into the vortex where they had vanished. Three women and two babies floated there among the moon-white scales. The earth shook everywhere as it swallowed. The shaking sent rocks tumbling down the slopes, and a cypress came crashing green and brown to earth. The lake water moved again, all as one, this time in a single direction, surging east toward the softest shore. In the rush of it, Lilith's limp body surged against Essel's swimming one so that she found herself heaving and paddling another weight to shore, an entirely naked girl with a swollen, bright belly and a face as sharp as a bat's. Her arms and legs engulfed Essel, nearly drowning her in the tangle, but she fought her way to the shore, pushed by the water, pulled under once, racked suddenly against sand and smooth limestone grit with the other girl's body over her, warm despite the lake's cold. It was the strangest feeling Essel had ever known, the feeling that split hotly through her as she scrambled upright, rolling the body from her, cradling it as she did. She was, for a moment, in a kind of lover's embrace. And it was as if she had already held this girl, had always held her, in ways she could scarcely imagine. Every bit of her skin flared where Lilith's touched it. Every bit of her native solemnity broke. She leapt to her feet to get away from the feeling, her young body coming wildly alive, upswept as the autumn cyclamen, soft as the gold-streaked crocus that opens in red earth, alive as she had never been before. Is this what it felt like to be Tiln, always ecstatic over strange little lichens or finch eggs, a special acorn cap, a stone seamed with crystal? But those were girlish ecstasies, this was a woman's. There were white scales across the shore. Tiln sat in a blind terror, weeping, picking the scales desperately from her skirt, her hands shaking. Vries lay on his back, Castor and Cole clutched in his arms, trying to breathe. An old woman and a younger woman lay naked at the lake's edge, the younger woman's head between the old woman's long and wrinkled breasts, childlike in her stillness her smooth brow. Mother! This time it was no dream, no vision. Essel stumbled, dripping, sobbing, to lay her hands upon her mother's brow, to kiss her cheeks, to feel at her pulse. It was very slow. Her mother looked distant from her, laid in the old woman's arms, apart, a woman separate from the mother Essel had known. It frightened her. For a moment, Zola was a complete stranger. Then Tiln was there, clutching her. Is she dead? Oh, Essel, what's happening? Who is that old woman? No, not dead, but cold. We need to build a hot fire, dry our clothes and wrap them in them, warm them. Essel's solemn practicality returned to her all at once. She tried not to look back at the girl with the swollen belly as she went to search for wood, but she couldn't help her eyes. She saw Vries crouched at her side. The twins were still in his arms, a little squashed. 
He had his forehead to hers and was weeping. A cold wind swept across the mall, tearing at the lake. Essel tried to think what to say, what to ask. Why was Rhys there, holding the girl? Then she heard him murmur, Lilith, and understood. How had her mother come to be with this girl whom Rhys had known? She turned back to her mother and the old woman, her arms full of wood. She crouched by her mother, setting down the wood so that she could stroke Zola's cold face. Both women were so still and asleep deeper than dreaming. How could it be that her mother was here, now, at last? That she had been inside that darkness, that snake? A terrible rending cry came from the girl's limp body, and Essel whirled upright to see what had happened. Vri slept back. The twins began to wail. What have you done to her? Essel yelled, flying to his side. Her own voice frightened her and her fury. She snatched the twins from him, kissing their wet cheeks desperately. Lilith opened her eyes. They were two sharp wells. She writhed. What have I done to her? What did they do to her? Vries spat. The anger in him made Essel step back. It was bear-like and black. We need to build a fire, Essel said, softening, feeling older than her years. Let's keep them all warm. This is a woman's matter. She turned back to the girl. Is this your Lilith? She asked, more softly still, feeling the strange weight of that name on her tongue and the possibility that she was already promised, that she was his. But Vries was gone at the forest edge, breaking cypress boughs for Lilith to lay upon. Tiln darted close, helping to build up the fire to warm her motionless mother and the old woman and this strange, screaming girl. It was a quick, agonizing, animal labor and birth. Lilith refused Vries's touch, shying from it as from some anticipated violence, and let only Essel touch her, only Essel mop her brow of sweat, squeeze her hand, push her palms against her back or belly gently to ease the child down. Essel had helped her father with the birth of lambs and goats, and once the sheepdog with a litter of pups, but never a human woman. Still, somehow, she knew what to do, pulled into the vortex of the birthing, hardly conscious of anyone or anything else. Lilith, her own world. Somewhere at the edge of their yoked awareness, Vries hovered, holding coal, and Tiln fretted, holding Castor, touching her mother's neck for the pulse, both feeding the fire until it was dramatically large. The flames leapt at the dusk. Vries built another bed of cypress boughs under the old woman and Zola and dragged them near the warmth, though they did not stir. Tiln kept by her mother's side, touching her hands, untangling her dark, matted hair. Lilith knew little but the contractions through her body, the warmth of a certain pair of hands like amber through her. She clung to their simple heat, half-dreaming still, half-snake, half-moon, hanging to the pieces of herself that she could remember, and her name. Somehow the snake's children had become her own in that timeless time in the dark country inside the island's tunnels. At last the first head breached. It wasn't a human head at all, but a serpent's, tiny and bright-eyed, skin new as the newest leaves on olive trees. Essel stood back. At that moment Lilith was hardly human. Some other presence sheathed her, 
hovered around her, shadowed but whole as the moon is. And so Lilith birthed a hundred baby snakes onto the earth at the edge of the bottomless lake. They went forth from her without looking back. She had only been their vessel from elsewhere to here, and now they slithered unsentimentally away in every direction across the rocky ground, over the heavy, dreaming bodies of Zola and Arati, around the lake, into the trees, up the cliffs, and away. Later, both the very next day and when she was an old woman, Essel recalled their birth and their leaving as one swift motion, like a sudden torrent of autumn rain which turns the olive trees to a rainbow of droplets in the flash of sun, blinding. So the snakes and Lilith opening to birth them blinded her. Never before and never again would she behold so near a likeness to time itself. It was like seeing the moon touch down to earth and flash the whole motion of her cycle, then leave again as quickly, and Lilith, only a small woman, who the moment before had still been a girl, racked by forces far beyond her and left husked, like Kermes, barley, or acorn, on the ground. Snake touched, Zola stirred awake against Arati. The cypress boughs rustled. She felt the fire's heat and heard, before any other sound, the whimpering hunger cries of her own baby sons. 21. Earth was not merciful through her snakes. Hers was a terrible justice when it came. All day the newborn serpents streamed across the valleys and mountains of Kephthira, all day their cool bellies pressed the cool stones, their tongues tasted the air. They knew where they were going. Their mother told them through her stone. They went where the circle had been broken. They went where the oldest justice had not been kept. Some passed through the houses of goat herds and farmers, of beekeepers, weavers, tanners and fruit sellers, through their olive groves or sheepfolds, blessing them with flickering tongues. Old women scooped up the dirt they had passed over to place in clay vessels or sprinkle with water from a mountain stream. In the years to come, that day in early November became a holy one, the day of the snake's return, and people left offerings of honey on their thresholds. The newborn snakes were adders, and they grew larger as they went. By the time they reached the lumber camps of Enos, the gates of Crenia, the docks of Por, the village of Ateras, they were tawny, sinewed, and grown. It took only a single bite at the back of the ankle to kill a grown man. They curled in perfect circles around the feet of the ones they bit. Just there, the earth opened, taking in each victim, and for many days after, the round places where the ground had opened were smoking and black, like rings where fire had been. Some women and men of Kephthira who had betrayed their own people were bitten and swallowed too, and some folk of tar were spared. A hapless ironsmith's apprentice, a rope maker, a captive tea merchant, several whores, a soldier who had laid down his weapons and gone native for a beautiful boy of a mountain village near a terrace. Those who had not enacted violence upon others or Earth's own ways were spared. Those who had were not. The Prince of Tar they left for last. 
By the time the snakes found their way through the city's stone walls, courtyards, and corridors to the prince's inner chambers, there were no soldiers left to guard him. Slaves and visiting traders wandered the empty streets, dazed and skittish, terrified and awed both. A warm breeze blew everywhere across Crania, smelling of cyclamen flowers. In the slave women's quarters, shuttles hung from looms, wool was cast sidelong from spinning wheels, spindles lay across the floor. All the women were outside, holding on to one another, talking with strangers about what had happened, peering at the black and smoking rings that pocked the perimeter of Crania. The prince did not believe in bewitched snakes, nor in a swallowing earth. Still, his men had been coming to him all morning with reports of strange and terrible disappearances that seemed to burn the ground, and a tide of snakes, until suddenly no more men came to him with reports, and all he heard was the silence of the city around him the sudden emptiness of the walls. He smelled a strange, unholy burning. Despite himself, he grew afraid. He crouched at the door with knives, waiting. Surely it was easy enough to kill a snake if you saw it coming. What was the big fuss anyway? A few rampant adders? Where was everyone? The fools? He yelled for his serving man, a maid, anyone. But the halls echoed horribly, though he denied the horror of that echo as it came back to him. A log fell to embers in the hearth. A snake came out of the embers. It did not make a sound as it circled his shaking ankles and lifted its sinuous body to strike. The hole left in the wake of the Prince of Tar smoked for days. No one would go near the room until at last an old woman was brought in who claimed to know the language of snakes. Wherever she lay her new white hank of lace, the black rings vanished. 22. Sing a word of making into the cleft in the rocks at the bay's edge. Drop it down swift to the sea's water, a secret ship. The stones will swallow it not back into the bay, but into the island itself, into her cloven, tunneled dark. That word, sung in the old language known to rock and sea, will go the way the water goes, joining rivers that snake through the dark and endless limestone. Half the moon's making from dark to full, that word will travel in utter blackness, lit only by the pure river's melody. West to east it will flow on the dark waters of Kephthira, from death to life. From dusk to dawn, moonwise unbound. Watch carefully the waters of the bottomless lake on the island's eastern coast. Watch daily at the water's shore as the moon comes to full. Listen for the rattle song of the kingfisher, lady of storms and blue. Do not swim inside the moon's light on that lake of no ending. Only wait, and at the edge of fullness, at the hem of night, the word will come bobbing up from that underworld. It will have changed. Listen closely to what the island's dark and unseen rivers have made of that word of making. Listen to how it has grown and how it has stayed the same. That word is a needle now. It is ready for the thread. Instructions for making from the new language. 23. Ever after, Kephthira was both revered and feared across the White Sea. 
Women came on pilgrimage to gather ash and earth from the black rings left by the snakes who had unmade the world, and to visit the caves and temples where the old language was being made new. Only boats of peaceable intent made birth in Kefthira's harbors, decided not by fishermen or soldiers or sentinels, but by the shores themselves. Lightning, wind, and sudden riptides had their way with those they did not want. The cave called Drakaina became the seat of the first oracle in a thousand years, in a tradition almost entirely forgotten, and Arati was its first priestess. She had two handmaidens, and the women on pilgrimage came as much to glimpse them as to seek prophecy from Arati. She who had birthed snakes, and she who had called them forth. That was how Lilith and Essel were known in distant lands. But to each other they were only ever love, and their days were measured by the sweetness of time and Artemisia incense as it smoked in its little bronze tripod by the fetching of water from the smooth white riverbed in the gorge, by the spinning of fine pale silk for Arati's auguries, by the dances they made nightly around the fire, snake dances they invented as they went, laughing, touching, making light of the power in their bodies, and so nurturing it. Separate, Lilith and Essel might have each remained tight in their own inertia, their own pain and solemnity, like two lonely fists. Together they bloomed. They were two wild vines frothed with white clematis flowers, impossible to keep apart. They slept together outside under the stars and left Arati to the silent peace of the cave so that they did not have to stifle the sounds of their pleasure. They made in life between their two bodies what Arati made with her hands on white threads twisting them into oracles, into new words, into knowing. Much later, when Arati was gone and Essel and Lilith, the keepers of the cave, their auguries were made not of thread but of a twinned dance and the patterns their bare feet left behind in the fire's white ash. Women came from farther still to consult them and to learn from them. Always, snakes came forth from the cave's crevices to dance with them and vanished when they were done, leaving behind their own sinuous lines. At a terrace, Zola went back among her Kermes oaks and for many moons did nothing but nurse her sons and her dying trees. Her milk, which she had feared dry, ran impossibly. Her breasts waited her. She had more than enough to feed both her trees and her boys. For her oaks had indeed begun to die, and there were no new Kermes mothers for many years. Vries came with them to a terrace. He had seen how it was between Essel and Lilith from the moment Lilith woke, and found that he loved the twins and Tilm with a kind of painful brotherly tenderness that was the only true thing he had left inside himself. He did not leave again in spring as he planned, but stayed a full year, and a second, and then a third, and the beginning of the fourth, first to help mend the ruined house, then to hunt deer and rabbit for the larder, and later to grow a flock of sheep so that they might have milk and wool again, though at first the sound of bells made Zola weep. He stayed away in the hills for a time then, and slept out among the blooming summer time. The twins were boys of four and wanted to come with him, but Zola hardly let them leave her sight, though they were wild things. They still did not speak well, 
They bit each other often and could not keep a pair of shoes between them for more than half an hour. A few times that summer among the purple thyme and red earth and stones, Vries thought of leaving a terrace for good. Perhaps it would be better for Zola and her family if he struck out on his own at last. He had burdened her long enough. She should not feel charged with him. Alone, he longed for Lilith, though what he longed for in her was only his memories and the proximity of his brothers. He did not know it then, but it was for Tiln he came back down the mountain in autumn, chased right to her doorstep by his sheep. His pockets were full of treasures he had been setting aside for her, hardly realizing he did. It had become so natural to both of them by then. A striped sheaf of wasps' papery nest, the wishbone of a woodlark, a fistful of thyme flowers, a tiny mouse tooth like a crescent moon. He found her in the kitchen by a ceramic crock, looking very much grown for fourteen, her girlish shift suddenly not covering much of her dark legs. There was something wider and fuller about her in the way of Zola, her dress tight in places that it had not been before. Still, her wrists were as girlish as ever. She was feeding milk from a cloth to a baby snake she found sleeping in the crock the day before. Her hands were stained red from work with Zola in the dye house. The Kermes had started laying again at last while he was gone. Cole and Castor ran hollering to Vries. They clutched at his legs with pleasure and stuck their noses under his shirt to smell him like cubs, gleeful at his scent of hills. Look, Tiln said to Vries, as if no time had passed, not aware of what was in his eyes, nor of the long, owlish beauty of her profile as she turned. She held the little white snake in her hands. His pink tongue flickered. Do you think it's one of Lilith's? Should we call all snakes her children now? Or grandchildren, maybe? And she laughed, delighted by the thought, a laugh that released what was unfinished in Vries's heart, released it wholly and without regret, like a pair of good scissors would. He wanted to give her everything at once then, and found himself stammering, fumbling time flowers and wishbones and papery nests into her hands. This frightened the snake, who wriggled free onto the floor and out the open door, where Kephthira's autumn shone golden and Zola was coming in past the huddled sheep with a basket of red wool in her arms, singing. <laughs>